So God, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a chance just to gather together this morning and Lord, uh, just to fellowship, Lord, to be uh, sojourners, to be those along the way seeking out uh, truth in this world and to know that all truth leads to you, God. And we pray that this morning, Lord, that uh, wherever we are in this journey of faith, Lord, that it would be uh, deepened uh, and the roots would be strengthened uh, in you. And Lord, knowing that it all points to the culmination of your truth in Christ. And Lord, right now, just open our hearts and our minds. Lord, right now, work the work of unity in us through your word and the Holy Spirit, God, so that we could uh, care for one another well. But uh, and, and as a fruit of caring for one another, that we would be purposeful in caring for for the world around us, God, uh, for your glory and our good and their good. So we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we kick off a four-week series teaching through the book of Jonah. Um, if, you, if you don't know who Jonah is, he's the guy that got eaten by a well or a big fish and spit out, and so maybe that sounds familiar. Um, but we're going to teach through that for the next four weeks, and, and w- without doing a lot of background now, because we'll do it along the way, just a couple of quick kind of answers of why Jonah, kind of the pastoral heart of why we felt like Jonah was a good uh, text to teach through. And first and foremost, I'll say there's two very clear motifs uh, all throughout Jonah, two very clear themes, two very clear works that we will see all throughout Jonah. One is the very clear work of sin, and the other is the very clear work of grace. And, and if you've been here at all, you know that you hear the word the gospel a lot. And if you don't know what that is, that's the, the message of the good news of Christ, the message of Jesus being the Messiah, the message of Jesus coming to redeem a people, the message of Jesus coming to restore those who were far off from God, bringing them near, the message of, of Jesus coming to bring the orphan as an adopted full son and daughter of God. So we talk about that a lot, and I'll tell you, there is no gospel without sin and grace. We like the grace part. We don't like the sin part. So this is great because it's going to highlight that sin is very real. It's a very, uh, very real offense to the truth of God, and it's a very real offense to our own standing before Him. And then it's also going to highlight grace, which is such a comfort to that, to that offense and uh, to each of us. So we need to understand fully the work of sin and the work of grace. And Jonah just has very, very tangible pictures of sin against God and the grace of God to those sinners, us. And so enjoy that. And, uh, and my prayer is that we see ourselves and our city and the world in this context of sin and grace. Uh, secondly, is that God has given his church a command, just like he's given Jonah that we'll see, and it's that command to go. Uh, and we'll see that again in a moment. Um, there's a great need for the church's obedience to God's call to go. We have a couple of core values, a few core values that, that center on this. And, and one is that we would submit to full biblical authority, otherwise known as God's authority. And so we see that that's a work here that, that we're going to be diving into and learning about. And so important for us to key in that the, the God's authority is the one who matters, not ours. And so submitting to that and the call to go is very important. We also have this core value of being living missionally to the community. And all that word means is living for the same purpose that Jesus Jesus came to this earth for, for those around us in our community and for the community that we live in. And then not only is there great need, but there's also great freedom to go. That's another core value of ours, that we find ourselves living in full biblical freedom when we submit to the full biblical authority of God. And so first, it's relationally in the fact that we are made free in Christ 
personally, spiritually, eternally, and then also socially, that in Christ, compelled by the gospel, rooted in the word, we are free to go to places, spaces, relationships for the gospel that typically we've seen the church shy away from. And we've said, hey, I know you need Jesus, but you need to come to us. But because we have been compelled by Christ, just like Jesus was with the prostitute, he was with the taxpayer, he was with the outcast, that the the religious authorities, those that were lauded and respected, shunned, we see the force and the impact of the gospel. And so again, that's why this is important, because this is that heart. So we are compelled to go, and we are free to go in Christ for Christ. And then the last thing I would say here is that we can see such a common setting. In Jonah, we'll see that he's told to go to this city called Nineveh, and Nineveh is described as the great city. And it's not just saying that it's got great restaurants, good entertainment. It is saying that it is this majestic splendor of a city. If you read some of the, you know, the, the current text of the time, you would see uh, Nineveh described as one that had no compare, one that the splendor could not be compared with by any other city, could not be rivaled. So it's just described as this great city, and we live in Houston. And this isn't just like hashtag we love Houston, but like we, we live in a great city. Houston, just, just generally speaking, some reasons why it's great, it is the fourth largest city in the U.S., uh, and some of you have heard this before, Houston has over 2,000 uh, new residents moving to it every week. So it's a city that's attractive and it's growing. Uh, it is the most internationally diverse metropolitan area in the U.S. More so, Again, you've heard this more so than New York, Boston, San Francisco, L.A., all these other cities that we think of as, as maybe having that claim, but that's Houston. So with that comes a melting pot of ideologies, re- religions, and cultural backgrounds. And again, that's, that's a mark of civilization, right? That's a mark of progress that all these people can coexist. So Houston has all these markers of a great city. So for all intents and purposes, Houston is a great city as well. And, and, and it's just really big landmass-wise, too, if that matters to you. Everything's better and bigger in Texas, I guess. Um, and one last word about Jonah itself in the book of Jonah. Um, it is often debated on, on whether or not the book of Jonah is telling the, the, the story of a literal occurrence that happened or if it's mere allegory, a story to make a point that is possibly fictional. Um, and again, coming back to the thing that people get hung up on in this and the big reason why is because Jonah gets eaten by a fish, stays in the fish for three days, and gets spit back out. And I want to take a moment to give you proof that this can happen. I'm not going to get some story off the internet about someone getting eaten by an alligator or some other mammal and then coming out a few days later. We're going to look to Jesus. Matthew 12, 40. It's on your screen. It says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I'll tell you this especially for those who would call themselves Christians, who would say, I am a Christ follower, surrendered, believed, confessed. This is our proof. Jesus presents Jonah as literal. He uses it as a literal example, no caveat, no, hey, you know the story about Jonah. Well, just like in that story, uh, you know, this meta, he, he just says, just like Jonah, I'll be like that for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
So the point is here, let's not get hung up on the fish. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's get hung up on the person of Jesus. So when we think about Jesus, because again, I know this is Old Testament, but Jesus brings it into the New Testament. And he says, so we have to ask, do we believe that Jesus is God? Do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do we believe that his word is trustworthy? And if your answer is yes to those, which I hope that it is, I have to ask, is it any more ludicrous that a blind man could see, that a dead man could be raised from the grave, than a man be swallowed by a big fish and then be spit back out a few days later? If you believe that God is a, is a God who is omnipotent, who has all power, who has all ability, is a miraculous worker of all things, is this that big of a deal? So, I say let's focus on Jesus. Let's not get hung up on the fish. Let's focus on Jesus and see that that is enough. Again, it is a walk of, there is a call for faith at times. And I, my faith is in Jesus and he says it's true. So there you go. So again, if that's you and that's not satisfactory to you and you're like, eh, I still think it's allegorical. Eh, hey, guess what? We can continue to wrestle well together. Let's have some good, honest discourse. Let's take it to the Word of God. Let's, let's not just say, okay, agree to disagree. Um, and, but we're all, you know, as we kind of go through this journey together. So we want to bring those understandings and those questions to each other along the way. So go ahead. With all that being said, open your Bibles to Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. If you're using one of our Bibles here, the little uh, white Bible with the black border is page six, five, 658. Um, We'll have verses on the screen. You can use your phone. If you don't have any of that, feel free to take that Bible that's there on the floor near you. That could be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. So, so uh, if you, also, no shame in the table of contents. Jonah's a pretty small book in a pretty, pretty obscure area of the Bible that we tend to not spend a lot of time in, even though it's pretty dang rich. Um, by the way, after we finish Jonah, we're going to go through another minor prophet, uh, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on where you're from. Both the same. Um, and so that's going to be the next four weeks. So we're going to have some fun times in Minor Prophets. And by the way, they're called Minor Prophets not because they were less talented or less effective, but because their books are shorter, just so you know. Okay, so major, minor, but it's just about the length of their books and about how much they had to say. So Jonah chapter 1. We're just going to jump right in, and we're going to kind of give some background along the way. So here we go. Jonah 1.1 says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amite, saying, pause. We're going to stop there. All right? So, and we're not going to go this slow through the entire text because we're going to cover 16 verses today. But we're going to go slow through the first three. Okay? So right here, we're going to pause, just talk about a little bit more about Jonah the guy. We talked about the book, the overall themes. We're going to talk about Jonah the guy for a minute. The book of Jonah fits best into this genre called the prophetic narrative. So it is a book of prophecy, but it is much more of a narrative. It's the telling of an occurrence that happened to Jonah. So it's biographical about Jonah. And if you've read Jonah, or if you haven't, I want you to read it this week, and you'll see that it is a very unsatisfying narrative. It's one of those cliffhangers where you feel like there has to be a sequel a sequel, because it ends just very unresolved for our liking. And I'll say because we want, even because what we find the tension to be is that this is a biographical narrative about Jonah, but yet it doesn't resolve for Jonah. And so just a reminder, all of the Old Testament is about God, about him being established as the sovereign covenant keeper, covenant maker God. And so as we work through Jonah, that's your overarching umbrella to rest in because Jonah is, is pretty complex. It's got a lots of ins and outs, a lot of uh, kind of questions about what this means and that means. We've got to stay under that umbrella. 
So when we think about a, a, a prophetic book, we expect it to deliver a message. I will say Jonah does definitely has the intent of teaching lessons. It's meant to be didactic. It's meant to give you things to walk away with, but it's not in the sense prophetic of the proclamation of the prophet that we would see in Jeremiah and Isaiah, Amos, but it's more of God teaching through this occurrence. It is meant to be a didactic kind of giving of lessons. Um, he does deliver a message, but it's through his story, his, re- his reactions, and God's relating. Uh, and so as we, as we um, continue, I want to, just for our sake, kind of share, share with you my perspective of Jonah. Because you ask, you ask anyone kind of what they think about Jonah, you're going to get a lot of different responses. So here's my, here's my perspective. Jonah was a prophet. No one debates that. Says he was. Um, some would say that he was a bad prophet, though. Um, but I'll, I'll say this. You can't be known as a prophet for long if you're a bad prophet. Because one of the consequences, if you are a prophet who makes, who makes a proclamation of a, of a word from God and it doesn't come true, do you know what the consequence is? One time, what's the consequence? You get stoned to death, all right? So the fact that Jonah is known as a prophet and he's still around would say that the proclamations from God that he makes, in the Old Testament, these were the mouthpieces of God. They spoke, the Lord said, and they spoke the word of God to the people for them to respond to. And so he was, I say he was a good prophet. People get hung up because he was a prophet to King Jeroboam II, who was the most evil king of the northern kingdom that there was. He was just, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, Scripture says. Um, and we can see that not only, not only was Jonah good enough that he was a prophet to the king of the northern kingdom, he was also, uh, which we can see that in 2 Kings 14.25, it says that here. It says, He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the sea of the, Ara- of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. So there you go. All that to say is just you can see that Jonah was a prophet to the king. So he's an important prophet because there was more than one prophet. So he was an important prophet. He was a prophet in the court of the king. People get hung up because Jeroboam was the evil king but, and, and Jonah prophesied in his favor. But as you see, it was according to the, Lord, to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. God said because of his covenant to his people, he is still working for them even though they were acting evil against him. So we see Jonah was doing the work of God even though it was under an evil king. And we see that under Jeroboam II, they had lost all this land by being attacked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And, and under Jeroboam II, they had reclaimed that land all the way back to the time of David, the land they had with him. So there was a time of prosperity for Israel even though they were doing evil. So the reason why there's mixed reviews about Jonah is because of that, that favor for an evil king that he prophesied. Um, but we said it was, again, uh, according to the word of God, so we can have trust in that. So we can also say that Jonah was a good uh, prophet, humanly speaking, because of the position that he held, like I said, as a prophet in the court of the king. So he's a good prophet, and he was a successful prophet. We can say that about Jonah. That's helpful as we continue forward. So that's Jonah, okay? All right, so we won't have to do all this background week to week because we're going to lay a lot of it out here today. But there's three characters in this narrative that we want to pay attention to. And, and just so you know, you naturally know how to take in information for narratives. When you watch a movie, 
and you see a detail stick out, and you don't know why it's there, but you know it's important, and you know it's going to come back later. That's the way narratives work. They draw your attention to certain things that are important that may seem mundane or minute at the time, but they're important later. And the story all goes together to a point, and so we're going to see that here as we go. So again, this is a narrative, so we want to think of it. We want to approach it in a narrative way, not just academically. We want to read it as a story that has a point. Um, But there's three characters in this story of Jonah. It's God, Jonah, and the Ninevites. That's it. The, 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 The cast is really short. God, Jonah, and the Ninevites. So as we work through Jonah, first and foremost, we want to look at the character of God. If you want this book to be satisfying, you've got to to start there and in there. Look at the character of God. Look how he's working for his people, the people of Israel. Look at how he's working uh, in the lives uh, of of the people of Nineveh, those who are outside of the people of Israel that were even acting against the people of Israel, his chosen people. So look for the character of God. Look for it to be revealed in how he interacts with Jonah, how he interacts with the pagan sailors, how he interacts with the Ninevites how he calls people, how he responds to their responses, key in on the character of God. If you are a Christ follower, if you have, again, surrendered your life to Christ, acknowledged him as the Messiah, think about Jonah. Look at Jonah. He he is a Hebrew. He is an Israelite. He is part of God's people. So sit in his seat. If you're here and you're like, I don't know how I feel about Jesus, or you know how you feel and you're like, I don't believe in Jesus. Um, I, don't, I don't say this to sound harsh, but sit in the seat of the Ninevites. They didn't believe either. So I say you're welcome, but that's, that's kind of your seat. But we'll see just as God's heart for them, there's an invitation that you don't have to stay in that seat. So hear the invitation to the people of Nineveh. See God's heart for the people of Nineveh, people that were evil outside of his promise outside of his, his law, his word. But again, even though I just laid out those specific things, no matter what, just for a helpful personal exercise, as you sit in here, also I encourage you to go out, uh, out of here in this place and read it on your own. Sit in all three seats. Read through it. Take multiple laps, sitting in each seat. Sit in the seat of God. Sit in the seat of Jonah. Sit in the seat of the sailors and the Ninevites and really try to experience from those seats. Take on those roles. It'll be extremely helpful. So, there's some work. So now let's continue. So we've just read Jonah, the son of Amorite, went. He was, he was told to, uh, he was, the Lord came and spoke to him. And this is what he said. This is verses 2 in the beginning of verse 3. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Okay, we're going to unpack this for a minute. So Jonah, a prophet, who is used, used to getting the word of God to deliver to the people, gets a word from God. And what is his response? He flees. He runs. So why did Jonah run? So if you're hoping that for the next four weeks we will let the narrative unfold to build the suspense and then resolve it, I'm sorry, we're going to give it all all away right now. Here's your spoiler alert. We're going to jump to Jonah 4, 1 and 2. Jonah makes it very clear why he ran. We don't have to guess. He tells us why he ran. So Jonah 4, 1 through 2. And the Ninevites, this is after the Ninevites repented. 
and confessed. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So why did Jonah run? He knew God's intent. He knew God's heart. He knew, he knew the power and effectiveness of God's word and proclamation. He ran because he didn't want the evil people of Nineveh to repent and turn to even have a chance at redemption. He didn't want to be a part of that. Again, Nineveh, one of the greatest cities of the time. It's an Assyrian city, possibly the capital of Assyria at the time. If not, it was the capital shortly after that and was the last capital of Assyria. Assyria had, much, had done much harm to the Israelites. They had done much, much harm in, in the history of it, and they were presently doing harm. So, even, so Israel was having this time of peace and abundance where they were retaking land. And, and uh, Syrian Nineveh was a, was a neighbor not too far out from there, and they were attacking some of the surrounding Israelite, uh, the Hebrew villages. And so again, there's, there's this animosity that Jonah has. Not only that, the, the, the Assyrians and Nineveh were extremely pagan. What do I mean by that? Because again, I, I think our culture doesn't use that term very often. I mean against the God of Israel, against the covenant God, against the one true God. They were pagan. They were acting in ways against him. So Nineveh was evil and it was doing evil things, but it was doing well. Right? They, were, they were in splendor. They were, they were successful. So Jonah's just resentful of Nineveh for multiple reasons. And he doesn't want to see them get a chance to be redeemed, to be restored, to find forgiveness. He was a prophet. He was zealous for the things of God. He was committed to the, to the people of Israel, so he was personally invested. But we see also he's very human, right? I mean, none of those things, although they're true, don't justify the reality of his actions. So I would say we can best describe Jonah's reason for fleeing as self-righteousness. His way was the one that was right. Self-righteousness. Jonah was extremely self-righteous to the point where a prophet of God said, no, my way I don't, I don't, I, no way, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to be a part of these people being forgiven because of me, because I have done it so right. They don't deserve the chance. Look at all that I've done. I've kept the law of God. I've made my sacrifices. I've stayed clean. Look what they've done. They've spit in the face of God. They spit in his ways. They don't deserve it. Jonah's extremely self-righteous. So brace yourself, flex your stomach muscles a little bit. We are self-righteous, right? I guess we are. And, and if you don't think you are, that probably means you really are. And so we are self-righteous. I mean, think about all the things that trip us up to cause us, that, that we step into self-righteousness. Thinking ourselves better than we are. Thinking ourselves un, out of God, the need of God's grace. I mean, again, just, just thinking about Christ followers for a minute, I mean, it's about how well 
we, we show our holiness, how often we serve, how often we come to church, how often we, we do things. We are self-righteous over what we do. We're self-righteous over what we don't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. And shame on those people who do. I grew up under a youth pastor that said, I don't smoke, drink, dip, or chew, and I don't date girls who do. Like, that was, that was my training in holiness growing up. Um, is it true? Did, did I, did I, I think I married a girl that describes that. Okay, good. Um, She's amazing. Um, uh, but we have many reasons to be self-righteous, whether it's how much we do or what we don't do. We, we drift into self-righteousness all the time. And like I said, if you think yourself, if you think yourself that you are not self-righteous, you are self-righteous about your lack of self-righteousness. And so again, it's just something that we all have to contend with, and we can never say that we are beyond. Now, praise God, He takes us as we are and He grows us. It's called sanctification, the process of being made more like Him over the journeys of our lives as we walk with Him. So while we will always contend with this, He is transforming that in us just as a glimmer of hope because I don't want this to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so, so, I'm so self-righteous. Like, guess what? Every sin in our life is caused for rejoicing in God because of the grace shown in Christ. So if you recognize that, man, thank God for it, surrender it, and let's go forward saying, all right, Lord, continue your work in me until completion or the day of Christ Jesus. But we are self-righteous. If you ever find yourself talking in the terms of those people, there is your litmus test for self-righteousness whether it be those people in our church, whether it be those people in our community, whether it be those people in our world, whether it be those people with, with, with faith, creed, race, anything. There's your self-righteousness. And man, this week should bring us to our knees when we are confronted with the reality of our self-righteousness and our need for grace, our need for the refining and purifying and regenerating work of Christ. I mean, once again, we are faced with, with what's happened in Oklahoma and North Carolina, we see this divide just growing wider and wider, and we're only finding more questions and less, and less answers and how to engage well. I mean, just thinking about Lauren Turnham, was, it works. she's on a project in Charlotte and having to leave early and her expressing the heart of, I, I mean, I, they, they implored me to leave because of safety, but yet I also know that the truth lives in me and I want to love those there well. Like that, those, that heart, that question, like how do we get beyond our own self-righteousness where we, where we like kind of start throwing in these caveats of judgment as opposed to being involved in the work of reconciliation where we acknowledge that we have one creator and one savior, Jesus, and it's by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone that any of us have hope, any of us have worth, any of us have a future. So God gave the church the ministry of reconciliation. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All and all are in need of that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Christ did the work, gave us this ministry to be a part of that he could continue the work. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Himself, not continuing their trespasses against them, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ.
Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we have any chance of partnering in the work of reconciliation in Christ, we must work to kill self-righteousness in us. It takes humility. It takes a common understanding of that we are all in need of the same grace. While Christ has done a work in us, and maybe he has, he has brought victory in some areas, we are never beyond his need. We are never saying that, well, I've got this, and they don't, we, have, we, we never have the right to sit in the seat of judgment over anyone. So, so wherever you find yourself in the conversation, and be a voice of truth, be a voice of peace, be a, rec- be, a work- be a worker of reconciliation. For those, and I'll say, especially in times of right now where, where the conversation is full of tension and the, and the hurt is heightened, now is the time for you to speak truth and love with the relationships you have. Don't go out to some relationship you've never had and try to speak truth and love. So with those people that are in your life right now, man, be a voice of truth. Point to the gospel. Point to grace. Call for grace. And then for those relationships you don't have, listen. Listen. And listen some more. Find ways to get into environments where you can listen and understand. Pray for understanding. Pray for eyes and ears that see and hear the the cry for the gospel. That's our opportunity. It is a real need today. Again, we, we, we talked about this at the beginning of the summer. And, and again, like we do need to have skin in the game. We do need to fill this for our neighbor. We do need to fill the pain on, on all sides. And I would just say, wherever you, at, wherever you are, steward those relationships well. Realize you've been given influence in those relationships for a reason. So be that voice of loving, patient, truth and grace, and then find ways to listen and learn so that we can then come alongside well and, again, find that reconciling work that is only achieved in Christ that all could say in Him we are a new creation. All could say that we have one Creator, one Savior, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Cannot be us and them. Cannot be. We are all in need of that Savior who knew no sin that became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness, not our own. So, coming back to Jonah. God has told him to go to his enemy. And Jonah's self-righteousness caused him to flee. God has called us to go. We must go. We cannot flee. Let's read the rest of our passage, and we'll close with a couple of thoughts. So here we go through chapter through verse 16 from where we left off in verse 3. He went down to Joppa, that's, that's Jonah, and found a ship going to Tarshish, which no one knows exactly where Tarshish is, but it, take it as the farthest known point away from what they knew. Could possibly have been in Spain, somewhere on the far western Mediterranean coast. Again, this time... Space is different than how we think of it. That was a long way. It might as well have been the other side of the earth. So he, he goes to go to the farthest place he knows to go. He's fleeing. So he paid the fare and went down into it and get, and to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
There's so much irony in this, by the way. But, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They, then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? and Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Seems normal. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Oh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Man, there's a lot in there. We're going to focus on one or two things. So first, notice that the Lord's will will be done. Jonah, why did Jonah flee again? Because he didn't want the people of Nineveh to have that chance to repent and find restoration and be redeemed. It's interesting that Jonah was called to go to Nineveh so that pagans, people against God, would hear the truth of God and repent. Did you notice what happened? These sailors on the boat, they were pagan. They, were, they had no clue who this God was. They were just like, just like throwing dice, trying to get lucky. They're like you know, praying to ancestral gods and saying, I think probably some God is in like making this happen. They're calling out to any God they can think of and saying, man, if you could convince the, whoever's doing this to stop, that would be great. That's kind of where they were. That was their understanding. By them inquiring of Jonah, he ended up proclaiming the very authority and person of God. And what did these sailors do? They repented and truly believed. Verses 14 and 16 says, Therefore they called out for the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done, it, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, uh, and it ceased raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We see God's heart for the outsider, God's heart for those against him was still carried out. These pagans heard the truth of God and they repented. Jonah was a work of that in his fleeing. I just love that. It's comforting and it's humbling. God is a sovereign God. His will will be done. He proved his authority over all things and that he will employ that authority in any means necessary to complete his will, whether it be through you or in spite of you. How fun is that? So if God is sovereign, it is far better to be a part of his will by choice than by force. 
It will be done. So I know that I would rather be a part of it because I've surrendered and said yes than be thrown into a raging sea and eaten by a fish. That's great. So let's be a part of it by choice. There's no reason to think that Jonah would have thought that him fleeing to Tarshish would have prevented God's word from being proclaimed in Nineveh. Like I said, he was not the only prophet. God could call another prophet. He just didn't want to be a part of it. So he fled. So, again, by choice, let's surrender and say yes. It's much better to be a part in that manner. And then another interesting thing, my last point. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out, this is in verses 5 and 6, to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Why was Jonah sleeping? This was always puzzling to me. And then I remembered when I was young, when I was in elementary school, I was deathly afraid of tornadoes. I mean, to the point where if I saw just anything more than a stratus cloud, one of those little wispy clouds, or as Bob Ross would call them, a happy cloud, I, I would, I literally, I'm not kidding, if I saw just any kind of white like cloud that had any kind of formation to it, even if it was white as could be, I, my stomach would start to hurt. I mean, I was that afraid of tornadoes. And, and my sister was older than I, and so I remember we would be at home at school at times by ourselves while our parents were at work, and, and storms would come through. And as if, I remember as a fifth grader, like crawling as far underneath my bed as I could, and in the midst of this raging storm, I would fall asleep. I would sleep. And you would think with all of the fear and anxiety, how could I possibly go to sleep? But it was my fear of facing the reality of the storm that it was like the only way that I could escape it was just to shut down and go to sleep. Literally, I mean, I would, I would just wedge myself under the bed and go to sleep in the midst of the storm. I think this is the picture of what Jonah was doing. He had the dread of disobeying God all over him, and the only thing he could do to escape it, because he knew that the weight of God on him would call for a response, the only thing to do was to not face it, and that came through sleep. Again, as we started with, we each have a call on our lives. Whatever, you know, whether it be to repent today and believe in Jesus as Savior for the first time, or be to go to your enemy, to go to the places that are difficult and proclaim the goodness of our God shown in Christ. The church is described as a sent people. We must go. We cannot allow ourselves to drift about asleep any longer. I mean, can we be like the sailor and recognize the absurdity of sleeping in a time like this? Can we allow ourselves to slumber any longer? Your need is far too great. Our world's need is far too great to escape in slumber. The stakes are way too high. So we must hear this charge. Arouse, O sleeper, what do you mean by this sleep? And call out to your God. And pray the humble and fervent prayer 
of one who has tasted the grace in Christ. Pray the humble and fervent prayer of those who see the world around you that is in need and is searching and is seeking because God has made himself known enough that they would hopefully grope around and find their way to him. Wake up and be a part of calling people and being the voice of, the, of heralding the truth of God. Give it in Christ. We cannot sleep. We have been told to go. So we cannot allow this self-righteousness or, or to, to allow us to rest, allow us to detach, but we must understand the great work given to us. So today, will we heed the call of God? Will you respond with surrender and action? Will you go to the places that are difficult? Will you deny comfort? Will you step into the sacrifice? And will you participate in God's will in that manner? I'll pray. So God, we thank you that you are a sovereign, good God. Lord, in your sovereignty, let us be humbled and let us be in awe. God, let us even have that right fear of you. Lord, we feel the weight of your glory knowing that it cannot be fully attained or fully grasped. Lord, that there should be some, some hesitation as we approach you. But Lord, also hearing your promise of grace and as you have told us in your word to boldly approach the throne of grace because you have made a way for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that just as you told Jonah to go to a people far off and in need, let us respond in the same manner, saying, yes, I will go. Do not let us sleep any longer, escaping the need of the day. But let us be roused up, Lord, for the sake of your name, the sake of our neighbor, Lord, to be a part of Jesus' work of reconciling man to man and man to God. So, God, we love you. We pray for this time uh, that we step into remembering the work of Christ. Let our hearts and our minds be yours. Let them be open. Let us respond with willful action. In Jesus' name, amen.